Welcome to Strung Out, the podcast that looks at life through the lens of an artist. Your host is the artist, writer, and musician, Martin Lawrence McCormack. Now here's Marty. Welcome to Strung Out, and we have another session of Beatles Talk. I have my panel of experts, my vast panel here. I've got Paul Schneider, who is a journalist, uh, a music critic, has written extensively about uh, different bands and knows quite a deal about the Beatles. And I have with me Tim Goldich, who I would say is an expert on the Beatles. You have watched, listened, read almost everything about the Beatles. It's just great to have both of you gentlemen here for this podcast, this is gearing more toward the musician or the creative person that's listening. I want to talk about the amazing songwriting team that Lennon and McCartney were, because you take not only two people whose personalities were so, I think, in a lot of ways, polar opposite, but whose writing styles were polar opposite. And I want to start with just this and... uh, I think that the most difficult song that can be written in pop music, this is just my opinion, is a positive message, upbeat song that does not smack of corniness or any pandering to our sensibilities as human beings. Likewise, the opposite of that, the easiest song, in my opinion, is to write a slow depressing, cynical, uh, the the cup is half empty kind of song. Mm. It's just because I think the human psyche is wired more despair and disaster being something that comes a lot more naturally than, wow, happy days are here again. Great tune, by the way. Yeah, great tune. (laughs) Not a Beatles song. Am I right? Am I wrong? When it comes to the Beatles, who was the happy songwriter and who was the morose songwriter? And did they adhere to the my description? I think Ringo was the happy songwriter, wasn't he? Octopus's <laughs> Garden? I don't know. When you raise a question like that, Marty, my thoughts go to John and his mother getting run over by a car. And how that settles in and influences everything that he does and creates and the people that he ends up having relationships with going forward. They both wrote happy songs. They both wrote sad, morose songs, and they wrote happy and sad songs together. It's, you know, it's like the, it's the Yoko question. I, you can't, I don't think you can really separate it out. Yes, they were two very diverse personalities, but they loved each other more than two people could ever love each other. Yeah. And that really turns up in their creativity. And they were very competitive with each other. So right. if John writes a hard rocking song, then Paul wants to come up with a hard rocking song. And if Paul comes up with a, a sweet ballad, John wants to come up with a sweet ballad. They'd come at it from a little bit different directions, but they each covered all the bases, really. And I think the epitome of that was Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. They both independently of each other decided we're going to write about our hometown. And John started writing Strawberry Fields as a narrative about his own childhood narrative from a first person point of view. And Paul said, well, that's a good idea, but I'm going to write it more as a storyteller, which really exemplifies their songwriting styles. Paul's much more third. He'll much more tell you about 
the the nurse selling poppies from a tray standing behind the, the bus stop or yeah, whatever it is. And, and, and the barber shop and the bank and everything. And John will be like, I was at Strawberry Fields and this is how it was for me. Very much more comfortable writing from a first person narrative than Paul could ever be. Yeah. And trying to distinguish the two, there are a couple of things I think that actually do really distinguish them. One, I would say John wants to talk to you and Paul wants to regale you. And so John's melody stuck within a, a more narrow range so he could talk to you. And Paul's was more like Wednesday morning at mm-hmm. five o'clock. <laughs> Very melodic. That's a difference that is pretty strong. Even there, Paul could come up with some great one-note songs and John could come up with some great melodies. But as a bell curve kind of thing on averages, that's a difference between them. As far as writing songs together, that's real complex. I'd say they had an enormous influence on each other all the way through. But as far as writing eyeball to eyeball, as they say, where they're like in some hotel room and they're each on a bed and they're just looking right into each other and playing their guitars to each other, there's a, there's really only a few of those. And they're very distinctive and they're very amazing hmm. in my judgment. They're like, for me to you and the B-side, thank you, girl. And she loves you and the B-side, I'll get you. And I want to hold your hand. And perhaps there's a place. And maybe that's it for that kind of songwriting. And it's very distinct. Those songs, they have a quality that's... It shows up as each of them trying to surprise the other. So you have these odd... These things where each of them are trying to surprise the other in the process of writing these songs. So they're very eccentric in their chord structures and incredibly juicy, just amazingly juicy things that have the benefit of both those musical geniuses working together each in their own way. So that from me to you is just, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, and thank you, girl. Oh my God. It's the way they sound. Very early. Very early. Those were very early, right? Those are all very early. And then they started writing more apart and writing often complete songs on their own. But you still can't underestimate the degree to which they influenced each other and how even little tidbits like Paul knows as well as I do, things like we can work it out. And then John comes in with his bluesy. Yeah. There's no time. There's no time. Or or, or getting better. Yeah. It's getting better all the time. Time. It can't get much worse. John says, right. So there is that sort of sweet and sour. And it's built into their vocal harmonies with each other, too. This, this sweet and sour, you got the you got the Paul sweet and you got the John sour, but they mix into something really wonderful together. I, I love I'll Get You. Man, yeah, I, I know. Love, oh, That's my God. incredible. I love that song so much. And yeah. it gets no play at all. Right. Oh, my God. What I learned from the documentary from Get Back is that they really helped each other a lot on their songs. Again, Paul was the general. But when the two of them look at each other, there's just, there's a magic there. There's a synergy there that they just know what the other is thinking. And I don't know how you and Brian do it. If you sit in a room and you write together or you bring in songs and help each other out. But I'm also troubled by songwriting being only Lennon McCartney. 
George certainly contributed a tremendous amount yes. to the song. Paul credits George with the, the, the beginning of And I Love Her, that, you know, that other guitar part where Paul sings the bridge and George is playing it. Do, 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 do. You know, yeah. he's, Paul says, if George hadn't come right. up with that, I wouldn't have a song. I used to room with a guy in college, Gary, who was a guitar player, who told me that there's something called a George chord that he never gets credit for, but you hear it all the time in their song. Why didn't he get songwriting credit for that? Yeah, another example from the same album was You Can't Do That, a John song. But, you know, it's a fantastic song. But George contributes the riff that makes the thing. So, yeah, there was a lot of collaboration and. That's part of what made them so great. On previous podcasts, we talked about that idea of George being the odd man out in their songwriting relationship. And the only thing I could think of is there might have been some financial considerations as well. Well, sure, there was the publishing. Macklin Music, right? It was all they made more money than George did because their names were on the publishing, right? Yeah, yeah. John admitted in one interview, he said, you know, well, we... Paul and I basically carved up the empire between us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We're going to take a little break and we're going to come back with a, a little more when we're talking about the Beatles talk, the nature of the songwriting here on Strung Out. Thank you to those who purchased Marty's art this week. Lenny D purchased two prints of Northern Lights. Celso A purchased the Northern Lights Christmas card collection, and Polly Chase purchased a tote with the Centurion print on it. We have fine art for sale now with easy-to-order prints and accessories with Marty's art on it. Sign up on the mailing list and get 20% off. After a time, even a star will never shine. What calls the spark there in the dark starts to decline. The slow train wreck you helped unfold. So hard to go from hot to cold. First it was easy because you had to burn A deck of cards falling down hard It was your turn Fill that seven you have been told So hard to go from hot to cold Fabulous fall, lay on the floor, freezing inside. Brotherhood, no longer good, tired of the ride. Boys become men after the soul. So hard to go from hard to cold.
Liverpool Bulls starting to do for all to see. The skull nest creeps, help us not bear to force some freeze. Frostbitten fall, a frozen mold. So hard to go from hot to cold. Years get kind as they unwind. You were just lads. Two of you gone, two to go on with what you had. New perspective as you grow old. So hard to go from hot to cold. Greatest story was never told So hard to go from hot to cold Hot to cold Hot to cold And we're back, and I want to pick up where we left off with the legal end of it, with the the publishing. Publishing always gets the band in the end, because that is where the money is, still is today, is the the selling of the rights to the music. You see now bands selling their entire catalogs because they're at that point in their careers where they're going to sell it and retire or whatever. That's why Paul's so damn rich, because he bought everybody's songs. Yeah. He owns everybody's, he owns the Buddy Holly songbook. Yeah. That's why he's a billionaire, because he owns everybody's songs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's in the publishing. And you were talking about Paul McGinnis in the last podcast. He told you to publish your own stuff. Have it be the four of you. Don't go Bono in the edge. And on their albums, all songs by you two. Yeah. Very equitable. Yeah. yeah and, uh, and it's kept the band together for damn near 50 years. I, I, have, I think you two is probably the most successful band that I've seen as a band, my opinion of them is they're like the Beatles in the sense they've got some clunkers, but they have some great ones. I don't think they have the genius that Lennon and McCartney have when it comes to writing songs. Nobody does. It's tough. You have to really look around to try to find other songwriting duos that have that kind of power. And really, you have to look back to before the Beatles, Mm -hmm. to Gilbert and Sullivan, Cole Porter. I think those guys really belonged. They were born out of time. I think that they were maybe one generation or two generations late for what they really were meant to be. And that was Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, the whole pounding out. Yeah. Yeah, just cranking out that kind of show music. Because to some degree, especially their early stuff, it could all be show music. Hmm. And that's Paul's wheelhouse. He loves that. He wanted to be he wanted to be a songwriter for Frank Sinatra. Yeah. He had no he had no interest in rock and roll until he met John Lennon. He wrote When I'm 64 when he was 14 years old. Now obviously not as it came out, but he had the idea for it. So yeah, that 
those influences were very important for him. Your guys' opinion of all their songs, the most hybrid of Lennon and McCartney coming together and just putting it together as one. Again, I think I, I already mentioned like the five songs that in my opinion, you can't separate them out. Those are From Me To You, Thank You Girl, She Loves You, I'll Get You, and, and probably uh, There's A Place also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A day in a life. They came together with two d- different ideas. Right, but the, you can easily see the Paul part in the job. Which is actually the reverse of what we were talking about earlier, about Paul telling you a story and John presenting from a first person, where John tells the story of a day in the life, and Paul comes in with the personal stuff, woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my right. head. But so that's, it wasn't a collaboration. It wasn't sitting in a room looking at each other going, "How we gonna, what's this verse, what's this verse? It was John coming with this great song with no middle aid. And Paul's saying, well, I got an unfinished piece. Let me yeah. throw that in there and we'll see how it works. And that happened a few times. It happened. There was like a wait from Rubber Soul yeah. where they combined a couple songs. But still, in terms of just absolutely blended, I think those early songs are the uh, epitome of that. Why do, you, why do you think they got out of that mold? Because I would think that kind of uh, chemistry, that kind of alchemy would be what would produce the hits. Obviously, I'm wrong because there's a lot of hits, but... I don't know. That's a good question. I think they were different as songwriters and had different styles. And again, I think John wanted to write his songs and Paul wanted to write his. And they collaborated to the extent that they just needed to finish each other's song. They just relied on each other. But I think they were separate artists that wanted to create... And life gets in the way. John was married. So John and Paul couldn't always be together. They couldn't always, you know, go to each other's houses and sit and write songs together. So yeah, both of them being as prolific as they were, they would just start a song or write a song, come into the studio and say, hey, boys, here's what I have. Let's see how we can flesh it out. I think life gets in the way. They're living apart. And as the, especially as the years go on, and Paul's still in London. He's living literally a block away from Abbey Road. And John's out in Weybridge somewhere. He's got to come in an hour drive. And Ringo's got to come in from somewhere. And George's got to come in from somewhere. It's just not possible to, you know, spend that much time together as you did when you were teenagers trying to crank out Thank You Girl and Ask Me Why. And there's a, God, those are great songs. And there's a place and stuff like that. Well, let's take a little pause here. We'll come back with the final part of this podcast on Beatles Talk, the songwriting styles and of... Lennon and McCartney will be right back. Go to martinmccormack.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll get the latest blog from Marty, information about upcoming podcasts, and what's happening in the gallery. That's martinmccormack.com. She speaks, she says what she says 
territory about their songwriting. One of the things that I love in the opening minutes of the Get Back documentary is Lennon singing the melody to Jealous Guy with totally different lyrics. I got a a kick out of it because they obviously had their um, own junkyard of song bits and stuff to pull. What were some of the notable junkyard pieces that they pulled out and retrofitted for an album. Scrambled eggs. When Paul wrote yesterday, he had the melody, but he didn't have the words. And the words were scrambled eggs. Oh, how I love your pretty legs. Yeah. (laughs) Which is the same thing as on the road to Rishikesh, which becomes what else did they pull out? I don't know. There was a lot of stuff in that documentary that were just old songs that... 909. One after 909, yeah. That's one of the classic examples. Now, that was a song that actually worked on and there's complete studio recordings of one after 909 from the sessions for the first album please please me but it just didn't make the cut and when i'm 64 is an old chestnut that got refurbished i'll follow the sun is another one michelle there are a lot of examples of of where some there they just need some songs and they pulls something from way back, some fragment from way back, and finish it. Paul did that on his first solo on McCartney. There's a song on there called Hot As Sun that he wrote in 1956. And it just, oh, I've got this laying around. I'll just record this and rework this and see how this goes. Yeah, I love that Michelle story, right? Right. Where he's... Where they needed a song, and John said, you remember that tune you used used to to play? pick up birds with. parties you used to try to pick up girls with? Why don't you just (laughs) try to put some words to that? 
And Paul actually had to go to his friend. I forget the, the guy's name, but the wife to was some, to, to the wife was a some, French teacher. Yeah, to get some French words. And you say, "What would go here?" And she said, well, "How about Sonne les mots qui vont très bien ensemble?" He's like, "That's great. I love that." Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. but she never got a songwriting credit, even though she contributed two lines to one of the greatest songs ever written. <laughs> yeah, but I think he came up with the English version and just asked her for the French that translation. Ivan Vaughn? I don't know. I think that might have been Ivan Vaughn's Was it? Vibe. Yeah, I think That's so. interesting. It is interesting how many people put little touches along. It makes yeah, me think sure. of the lawsuit that a couple of years back with the uh, woman doing the scat singing solo on the Pink Floyd uh, Dark Side of the Moon album. Yeah, and, uh, and she recently got credit now. And she finally actually, got credit. Yeah for her a melodic invention in that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, songwriting is a very uh, scary thing in that sense that when you have somebody approach you and say, hey, I, I've got some lyrics and stuff like that. Would you like to take a look at them? I'm always very nervous about it because I think if I take a look at it, I might just subconsciously come back and, and write them. And there's a lot of lawsuits that always come up over that. I think Taylor Swift's involved in one right now. But... One of the things that that struck me with the Beatles was that idea of, was it, I think it was yesterday, right? Maybe it was yesterday or Let It Be. One of those songs where McCartney was like asking Lennon, did you hear this song before? It was yesterday. Was it yeah. yesterday? He was going around for months going, who wrote this? Somebody, you've heard this before and everyone right. was like, no, I think this is yours. Because famously he mm-hmm. woke up with it and went over and... and Picked out the tune and uh, the middle eight part yeah. was all there. Mm-hmm. And he thought, I couldn't have just dreamt all this. And he knew it was a, a special tune. He, he didn't want to brag about it, but he could tell us this is something special. And he went around asking, have you heard this? If you, is this like an old jazz standard? What is this? And finally convinced that he actually did dream that. I think that's so interesting. Uh, let me ask you guys this. When they did go on their solo pass, it just seems one of the arguments that people have about the Beatles breaking up was that they were never that great on their own writing. Is there one song of Lennon's and one song of McCartney's post-Beatles that you think equals or is better than what they did when they were in the Questionably. Sure, yeah. of course. Yeah, maybe I'm amazed, Here obviously. today, you could pick anything off of the first two Lennon. Yeah. Mother, that's as easily as great as any Beatles song. Imagine, of course. Imagine. Lots of working class sure. hero, all kinds of things. Uh, yeah, but McCartney, sure. Maybe I'm amazed is... I mean, it's top of the McCartney solo stuff, and it's as good as anything he ever wrote with the Beatles. And Definitely. And there's... Yeah, if I sit here and you give me a few minutes, yeah, I mentioned here today that he wrote about when John died. That's as good as anything he ever wrote with the Beatles. Yeah, sure. There's some stuff on his last album, McCartney 3, that stands up to his stuff, his lesser than great stuff with the Beatles, but can still compare with any of that. Yeah, and then there's all the the sort of problematic stuff that he did another day, which is an astonishing piece of craft. It's just, just exquisite craftsmanship. Uncle Albert Adam Mahal? Yeah. It's just, it comes off a little light, a little saccharine perhaps to some. Right. But in terms of the songwriting genius, it's it's all there. Yeah. We start out this podcast with my theory that it's hard to write a happy, upbeat song that doesn't smack of saccharine. 
and and pull it off. I think it's the hardest kind of song to write because mm. human beings aren't wired. Let me just ask you guys as a final question, and then we'll I let her the go. Other one was the final question. I know. Here's one more because <laughs> it, it just crept into my mind as you guys were talking about it. Who's more famous now, Paul McCartney now or Paul McCartney and the Beatles? <laughs> I wasn't around for the Beatles, so I don't know. But I think Paul McCartney and the Beatles, right? I mean, you open what? What is it? You open up any window in any city in, in, in the United States or England, and there's a Beatles song playing out of it. It had to have been Paul McCartney and the Beatles. I, I'm not quite clear on the question. Are you saying is Paul McCartney just by himself more famous, or are the Beatles? That's a difficult question. I'm not sure. I, I really don't know. He's he, my sister. She he's so iconic, Paul McCartney, at this point. I mean, he's of course, he's outlived John by 40 years, and it's possible that he's more famous than the Beatles, but I, I would still tend to think that the Beatles are more, more famous than Paul on his own. If he's, more really famous, if he's more famous now, it's, his, it's of his own doing. He knows how to get himself out there yeah. with the lyrics book and yeah. the videos that he's done for his last album and even doing the album. For McCartney, I think the biggest challenge is, like any musician that's been out there for a long time, is how to stay relevant. Yeah, he does a lot of things. He did that, what is it, that taxi cab thing? That, uh, oh, the uh, karaoke. Karaoke cab or something. And that, that kind of went viral. Yeah, he's been very good. And it's, it's amazing at his age. You know, he still has lots of energy and he can still pull it off. And he's done every talk show bunch of times he's yeah. very entertaining yeah and he likes to challenge himself that's how he stays relevant because he doesn't dwell on what he's done in the past he's always looking at what's the next thing i can do yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, a true know. artist uh, no doubt we ran out of time on this podcast and i want to thank my panel on beatles talk the highly esteemed tim oh, goldich and <laughs> the highly esteemed paul schneider and uh, it's just great to hear what you guys have to say about not only the Beatles, but just the songwriting as well. Because as a songwriter, it's interesting to hear what other people think about songwriting. And I think you're spot on. So I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. And we'll be back at it next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more information about this show or a transcript, visit martinmccormack.com. While there, sign up for our newsletter. See you next time on Strung Out. It's all so wrong, it's pain we feel, makes no sense at all. A swan song wasn't part of the deal, was no good call. Giving out joys, giving out